Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's Euractiv debate: Concrete measures for the food industry to go carbon neutral. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euractiv studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now, today's discussion comes at a very important time. We're just a few days away from the start of COP26, the UN Climate Summit happening in Glasgow, Scotland. And here in Brussels, lawmakers in the European Parliament and Council are right now digesting July's Fit for 55 proposal from the European Commission, which aims to strengthen EU climate legislation to meet the newly revised goal of reducing emissions by 55% by 2030. Each industry is looking for ways to reduce its carbon footprint. For the food and drink sector, this can be particularly difficult because of its size and complexity. The emissions from this sector, measured from farm to fork, make up an estimated 30% of total carbon emissions in the EU, with the manufacturing process alone accounting for 11% of this share, or 3% of the total. The industry is exploring a roadmap that could serve as a basis for the decarbonization of the food manufacturing sector, so as to significantly contribute to the EU carbon neutrality target. And to the implementation of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So today we've assembled a panel of food and drink experts to talk about what the industry in the EU is doing to get to net zero and what policymakers can do to speed up the process. Now you guys at home will be able to ask your questions to the panelists using the chat feature on Vimeo. You can go ahead and type in your questions at any point.、Uh, if you have a question for a specific panelist, just let me know, and I will ask those questions to the panelists toward the end of our panel. And of course, you can also participate in the debate on Twitter using the hashtag #EADebates right there below me. So let's go ahead and get started. I will introduce you to our distinguished panelists. We have with us here today Yolanda Garcia Mesquita, Deputy Head of Unit for Interinstitutional and Member States at DG Energy in the European Commission. We have Olivier Dubois, Senior Natural Resources Officer at the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO. We have Faustine Bastefoss, External Impact Director at the Institute for European Environmental Policy (IEEP), and we have Chris Daly, Chief Sustainability Officer for Europe for PepsiCo. Thanks all four of you for joining us here today, Yolanda. Why don't we start with a question for you?、Uh, what is the food and drink industry's contribution to emissions in Europe? And in the Commission's view, what's the best way to get those emissions down to net zero? Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here in this interesting debate. So、um, you touch an important point, and let's put in the context.、Uh, you describe very well、uh, the the target is to decarbonize、uh, the EU economy by twenty by twenty fifty to be carbon neutral, and、uh, with this intermediate target of twenty thirty fifty five percent emission reduction. So. All sectors should contribute to this target, and the food and drink industry is making an effort.、Uh, is a gradually redu、uh, reduction the greenhouse gas emission we have observed since uh, 2010. So in the period 2010-2018, has been a decrease of the greenhouse gas emissions、um, in terms of、uh, value added. Of the industry uh, uh, around 17%, which is important、uh, in terms of 
trends. So, but we need to do more. Uh, this is a very good starting point, but we need to do more and we need to do it in a cost-efficient manner, which I think this is a very important uh, element. For that reason, the Commission uh, tabled a very comprehensive and ambitious package. In July, uh, you mentioned uh, delivering the European Green Deal, the so-called Fit for 55 package, which includes 13 legislative proposals plus one strategy on forests. And all this uh, is a combination of policy measures uh, that they are going to address areas uh, from energy, climate, transport, taxation, uh, because there is no one single uh, solution in order to achieve in a cost-efficient manner the climate targets that we have in front of us. So um, uh, we will go uh, more in depth uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the second uh, part of the debate, but just to indicate uh, two important legislative proposals that have an impact for the industry and for food uh, and industry. Uh, one is the Renewable Energy Directive uh, with more ambitious target for the penetration of renewables in all sectors of the economy and in particular for industry um, and energy efficiency. And here is an important element because energy efficiency is something is an, a non-regret option in all scenarios and we need to enhance the energy savings and industry needs to make an effort. And there are as well important proposals in the energy efficiency directive uh, in order to enhance um, energy efficiency savings in the industry. I want to uh, highlight uh, the important invest investments that the whole economy needs to do in order to achieve this um, uh, to achieve the climate target. So, and, and uh, this uh, implies a mobilization of private and public investments. And for the uh, public investments, I want to quickly mention the Recovery and Resilience Funds, which is going to provide more than 600 billion uh, for the next years uh, for the member state in order to recover uh, from, the, from the pandemic, but in particular to make our economy greener sustainable and, and completely uh, climate proof. So here is an important opportunity for the industry together with other funds like um, the ATS funds, so uh, coming from the uh, from the auctions that could as well be allocated in the industry um, and in particular to enhance the penetration of renewables or energy efficiency measures in the sector. So um, I will stop here highlighting these uh, three areas, more electrification uh, for the food and industry uh, in areas that is not possible to electrify, to um, allocate or to look for innovative solutions like renewable hydrogen and of course energy efficiency. They are the three, um, let's say, um, uh, the key bone of uh, actions that the industry should uh, should address in order to be carbon neutral by 2050 and to get this intermediate target to uh, 2030. Thank you very much. Thanks, Yolanda. Electrification is definitely key. Let's turn to Olivier next. Um, so, Olivier, what is the global footprint of the entire farm-to-fork food chain globally, and what are the ways that those, the main challenges for those emissions can be addressed? Yes, uh, hello everybody, thanks for having me in this debate. My, my intervention will be more at a global level, as you said, and it will focus on energy because I currently coordinate FAO's work on, on energy. And put it bluntly is that the current use of energy in, in food chain is unsustainable. Uh, on the one hand, it's globally 
it represents 30% of the uh, global available energy. And most of it is beyond the farm gate. So in the food, the, the post-harvest stages, food industry, and so on. And most of it is in the form of uh, fossil fuels, which is not good. But at the same time, uh, at the global level, in many places, you don't have enough energy in the food chains for get them working, which represents them, for example, a lot of food losses uh, in the cold chain, for example, and, and so on and, and in uh, emerging economies and, and developing countries. So that's why we think it's very important to look at energy measures that can both address energy efficiency, like uh, Yolanda was mentioning, but also renewable energy, as she was also mentioning. And I think in that respect, there's a few things that prevent moving forward on this faster than we are doing. One is the, the energy sector often doesn't talk to the, the ag sector or the food sector, which is a bit of a problem because there are very good synergies uh, between the two. But there are also synergies with other sectors. I mean, if you have renewable energy systems in locations where the grid doesn't reach people, so it can power food industry, small agri-food businesses, it can also help the health sector, pumping good quality water, powering health centers, for example. So the synergy with the health sector is not sufficiently explored. Um, one thing also is that the business case of energy suppliers is linked to the business case of uh, agri-food actors. Because if agri-food actors, small and medium companies and farmers, improve their business because they have less food losses, better quality and more food that they can sell, then they can pay a better tariff to energy suppliers. And this again is overlooked. The third thing which is overlooked is we don't have enough intelligence, not enough information on how to de-risk and optimize uh, the locations for renewable energy in food chains. And you can do this by mapping these locations or combined with cost-benefit analysis. And FAU basically does both. Okay, I'll stop here for the moment. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Olivier. That's a pretty good point about how to integrate both power generation and agriculture, make them actually be talking to each other, communicating with each other. Uh, we can probably touch upon that again in the discussion. Uh, Faustine, let's turn to you next. You guys at IEEP have really been working on this issue and thinking about various solutions. Uh, so what are the concrete actions that the food and drink industry can take to reduce emissions? Yes, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Uh, before moving to the concrete actions, <clears throat> I just would like to make two preliminary remarks. <clears throat> well, first of all, it's very important to remind ourselves that the ultimate goal here is not to reach climate neutral food industry only, but to move the whole EU food and land use sector to net zero. Uh, based on some research that we did in the frame of Think 2030 platform, an initiative that we uh, launched, for consumption patterns to stay within planetary boundaries, each European would have to reduce by 80% the amount of natural resources they currently use for nutrition, housing, mobility and leisure. And our material footprint of nutrition alone would need to reduce from 5.9 to 3 tons uh, per capita per annum, which means roughly divided by two. So the magnitude of the challenge is quite high and uh, the change has to be systemic. 
Also, the climate challenge is obviously very significant, but so too is the need to consume and produce healthy and sustainable food overall. There are lots of synergies between these two. For instance, healthy diets, so less animal produce consumption uh, leads to climate mitigation. Uh, but it is important to recognize the trade-offs also that can occur between these uh, uh, different priorities. And it's important to address those. Now, replying to your question, on what can the industry do to reduce emissions? Well, first of all, it has actually the potential to reduce more than just its emissions, and that's important to stress. It can indeed drive changes in the wider supply chain through influencing the way we produce, but also the way we consume food. For instance, on the production side, it can develop meaningful sustainability strategies to drive raw material sourcing through mechanisms and assist suppliers to meet more demanding standards going beyond existing legislation, for instance, on reducing the use of inputs, moving to agroecological standards, organic, cage-free farming, etc. Second, it can also inform and therefore influence uh, in consumers' choices for better climate choices through labeling and marketing campaigns. Now, on the manufacturing processes and transports, uh, so the, the, the production side, um, there are three fundamental approaches to achieving net zero. First, emissions avoidance, then emissions reduction, and last, recovery. Avoiding and reducing greenhouse gas emissions are the first and main priority for the climate mitigation efforts, and that's really what the industry should focus on. In the context of the food and drink industry, measures may include, for instance, uh, elimination of food waste, uh, so that's avoidance, uh, changing the type of food pro uh, product produced, so moving towards less carbon-intensive uh, uh, products, as well as becoming more resource efficient, uh, for instance, removing unnecessary packaging, excess levels of energy, water, wasted ingredients, etc. The extent of transport used, uh, the model pattern and the environmental footprint of the logistical operations as a whole also need to be addressed. Uh, last point here that I would like to make and I will stop. Uh, problem is that these today rely mostly on voluntary initiatives. Uh, some of them are triggered by the law, but the law remains very patchy on this. So to ensure that necessary changes are enacted uh, rapidly enough and at the right scale, uh, it is actually of paramount importance to have a legislative framework in place, putting an end to unsustainable practices and setting the way to sustainable ones. And in that sense, uh, uh, the upcoming uh, proposals from the European Commission on a legislative framework for a sustainable system is very welcome. And we're actually publishing a report on the pathways towards that legislative framework today. <laughs> so, um, yes, I'll stop here. Thanks a lot. Very well timed for the publication of that report. Uh, I encourage uh, the viewers to check out that report since it's just coming out today. Uh, Chris, let's turn to you for an industry perspective. What is the food and drink industry in the EU specifically doing uh, to get down to net zero? Yeah, that's great. Well, look, I mean, let's put it in perspective first off. The uh, food and drinks industry is a 1.3 trillion euro industry. So it's absolutely huge. And as we heard from uh, Yolanda, you know, it's uh, it's about 30% of the carbon footprint. So therefore, you know, this industry totally embraces the idea of the journey that we're on to get to net zero. Now, when you talk about what we're doing to get there, I think, um, you know, 
as as a business, we've just uh, as 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 an industry, we've just um, had the decarbonisation uh, roadmap, uh, which is very clear in terms of you know what needs to happen, and a lot of the the comments from from my colleagues here today, you know, are reflected in that. And I think there are probably three big areas of problems and challenges that make this a journey. But it's also fair to say that you know this is an industry that has been for for quite a while on a, a decarbonization and an emissions reduction journey. Largely it has to be said from you know kind of things like productivity, food waste reduction, etc., all of which have helped to do it. But the scale going forward of what needs to be done is absolutely massive relative to what has been done up to this point in time. And some of the, the, the comments from my colleagues can kind of reflect that. The decarbonization report kind of pointed out three real, re, really big issues. The, the first one is that um, you know, the food industry in Europe is largely a, a, sm, you know, an, a small and medium-sized enterprise. 99% of the industry is actually in the SME category and it's very local and therefore because it's local it's often disconnected from networks etc. So there's a real challenge in trying to do some of the things that everybody wants to do. Everybody knows renewable energy is the way forward. How do we make that possible? And I think, you know, Olivia was referring to some of the challenges that are there and some of the opportunities that exist within it. Within um, the, the area, there's also the challenge of tech, technological support. You know, obviously, as we move towards, you know, a world where new renewable energies are required and different forms, you know, of procurement are required for different types of, of uh, circular resources. That means that companies need uh, to have the, the available capabilities within their organizations. And because, again, of small size of the food industry in Europe, uh, that uh, the, the individual companies that is, uh, a lot of that becomes challenging for companies going forward. Um, and then of course, you know, kind of the, 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 the big problem that everybody in this space has is that once you step into climate emission reduc reduction, you obviously are facing a whole value chain. You know, within the food industry, typically uh, for a manufacturer of food, 90% or so of the emissions will fall outside of its value chain. Uh, and of course, you know, that then defines what needs to happen, but it also means that th that manufacturer is then going to be dependent on those change happening in the industries in which, which serves it, and it's got to go and find those. So with that, I mean, effectively, there are kind of three ways that the, 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 the industry is moving forward. And I think, you know, all of them have been mentioned by, by, by colleagues here today. The first one is, you know, obviously product design going forward is, is very important. So how we source raw materials to go into a product, how we design the recipe of a product so that it has a lower carbon footprint. This will become critical going forward because the pure reduction approach by itself is unlikely to be sufficient. So there's a journey going on to work at, you know, kind of in every company, how can they create a product portfolio that actually makes sense for the world in which we want to live in. The second thing, of course, is you've got to start looking outside of your value chain, uh, sorry, into your value chain. So effectively, you've got to work with your growers to, to find the best ingredients in order to be able to capture lower carbon uh, footprint ingredients into your product and therefore have a lower carbon footprint for those products ultimately. So that kind of cross nature of the industry where you've got to work through your suppliers is the most fundamental piece of this whole journey. And it basically means that, you know, kind of for food companies that are serving food companies, the speed at which the food industry manages to, to make a change happen will depend on how the overall progress of the industry is, uh, because there's so much intersupply within the industry where you've got you know raw material makers that then form into finished products that then end up on consumers plates in, in the evenings uh, and so basically that connection is, is extremely important um, 
the thing about it is that there's a huge opportunity in this space. The, you know, the world of food is changing. I think, you know, for food manufacturers, there's a realization that going forward, you know, a, a low carbon footprint portfolio is going to be absolutely critical. So the incentive and the opportunity is there. And I think, you know, the industry recognizes that and that is helping to mobilize it. But the challenges I think that, that are there are that getting access to suppliers who have lower carbon footprints, getting access to renewable electricity in remote locations or to be honest with you not so remote locations in many cases it's both expensive and it's difficult to do uh, and these are challenges that need to be overcome transportation is a big part of the footprint of the food industry and yet transportation has been moving quite slowly and that's another big challenge so these are the challenges to overcome the the industry is trying to use the levers within its own power at the moment, which is to go out and try to source from suppliers the right materials, to try to build into the accessible solutions like renewable energy, et cetera, which are affordable and accessible for the most part. But actually, once you do those things, the journey becomes much tougher and you're sort of dependent on a lot of other industries coming to play and helping you out. And this is where the, the framework that has been created with Fit for 55 creates an opportunity to start realizing you know, how we connect all the different pieces of this journey because it's not a food industry alone journey to solve the food industry. It, it all has to come together across multiple industries and banks. Yolanda, let me put some of those points to you. And also just a reminder to the viewers at home, you guys can ask your questions to Yolanda or to any of the other panelists using the chat feature on Vimeo. So uh, Yolanda, Chris was just outlining there, I think, the complexity of the whole farm to fork value chain, right? And that if you're a manufacturer, so much of the emissions are coming from things that are elsewhere in the food chain. Where, so you're having to work with agricultural suppliers, you're having to think about the transport. There's so many different moving parts here. So what, as the commission, what do you advise the different companies at different points in this value chain, what do you advise them is the, the lowest hanging fruits, the simplest thing that they could do now and fastest to reduce their emissions? I think it's very important because uh, you mentioned um, in integration, we need to have a comprehensive view of the of the problem. So to achieve um, uh, the, the climate targets is clear there is not one single bullet and all the sectors should contribute. So you mentioned the whole value chain and it's clear that all the segments should be involved and so all segments should find or be part of the solution. Um, and, and I think what, uh, what in the comprehensive package that was tabled in, in July, there's a reason that they are a combination of policy measures. There is a pricing mechanism, which is the ETS, the emission trading system, but also we have uh, policy measures in order to ensure that they are regulatory measures to incentivize uh, the adoption of measures in the different sectors of the economy. Um, uh, let's say is touching energy, is touching climate, is touching trans transmission or uh, transport, is touching uh, taxation. So uh, if we uh, come back to the food and drink sector, um, it has been mentioned. Uh, the, 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 the elements, the key elements, uh, in particular renewables. So we need to accelerate the penetration of renewables in the industry. Uh, has been mentioned by Olivier and, and, and other speakers, the industry, industry sectors accounts 32% of the energy consumption. And don't forget the energy production and consumption is the activity that is more responsible of the greenhouse gas emissions in Europe. So we need to 
really facilitate the penetration of renewables into the industry together with the transport, which are the two sectors that they are, uh, let's say that they need to do an, a, a bigger effort uh, in the coming years. So um, heating and cooling has been mentioned as well. Today, 91% of the um, heating and cooling is based on fossil fuels. I don't need to repeat or to uh, to recall the situation of energy prices these days, which is really high prices would have a completely uh, direct impact on the industry and in particular on industries, uh, SMEs, but also large industries and also those that they are competing in the international scenario. So uh, the price of energy has an important impact in the competitiveness of our industry. So we need to uh, look at how to reduce uh, the consumption of fossil fuels, also in a way that this is sustainable, is going to reduce our dependency and our exposure to international fossil fuel prices. So I think this is one an important element. We need to accelerate the electrification when this is possible. And when this is not possible, what we need to accelerate is the production and consumption of renewable hydrogen. And here is important because we are looking at the future and to facilitate the penetration as well to the renewable hydrogen. And important because we have indicative targets. Let's say we need to go gradually to the decarbonization of the sector. And the starting point is to have indicative uh, targets that we can monitor and trace because otherwise we are not able, if we are not able to quantify, we are not able to uh, see the progress that we are doing and also to acknowledge the effort that has been done by industry. Um, energy efficiency and in particular I think has been mentioned circular economy. We need to use wisely our resources, either heat, either waste. We need to incorporate again in our value chains because they have a real added value. So we need to use uh, the waste is an important element to incorporate again in the value change. And I think this is important. Uh, uh, either could be heat in terms of cogeneration, but either uh, to use efficiently our resources in our value change. In terms of uh, energy efficiency, I think it's one of the important aspects that we need to touch. And we realize that uh, uh, an effort has been done, but more should be done. Uh, and and here I will I will highlight, uh, for example, the 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 audits, energy audits, or the um, the the, um, uh, the energy system management. Uh, the energy efficiency directive has introduced some uh, requirements in order to reduce the administrative burden for the companies. Uh, so far, it was for all SMEs to carry out these energy audits. Now has been uh, identified those that they are really, and, and was mentioned as well by, by the speakers, that uh, the food and drink sector is basically mainly 99% is, uh, is SMEs. So it's important what we do in order to reduce administrative burden. So the energy management system, which is more expensive, but at the same time is the system that is going to facilitate the identification where uh, the activities could be really more efficient and this to be progress, it could be done for those companies that they have really high uh, energy consumption, for others that they have low energy consumption, but certain amount, so um, 
10 terajoules, then for then for these uh, SMEs, they have to carry out energy audits. Uh, the, the, the aim of the energy audits of the energy management system is to ensure that we can map where the energy savings could be done in the industry, and of course, to ensure the implementation of the actions identified. I will stop here just to continue later on with, uh, with more elements. Thank you very much. Thanks. So, Chris, I saw you nodding for some of that. So, do you agree that those things are low-hanging fruit, or are they possibly complex? Well, I think I think I agree with all of the points. They're absolutely what needs to be done. Low-hanging fruit, Dave. I, some of them, maybe most of them, no. I think is the issue. I mean, I'll speak now as a as a large company. I work for PepsiCo, and you know, kind of if I look at what we're doing, and you know, we have real intent to, 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 to make progress on this journey and to get to a 40% reduction versus our 2015 base by 2015. So uh, by, by 2030, I should say. But you know, we're massively committed to this and we're doing what we can. But what it shows us is a lot of the time we run into barriers to make change happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So for example, you run into issues with trying to put renewable electricity as a replacement for fossil fuels, just because the power lines that feed your facilities aren't big enough and need to be replaced, et cetera. And then you run into legislative challenges and so on and so forth. So I think you know this is certainly a case where the will to do things, I think is definitely there across you know, the majority of companies at the end of the day in the food and beverage industry. But the ability to get some of the things done runs into problems. So, you know, what Yolanda said, I mean, I couldn't disagree with any of the points that are there. I couldn't disagree with the direction of where this is actually going. I think, you know, the European, you know, kind of union is doing a super job at driving this agenda. But I think what's also true is the speed at which change happens is unfortunately going to be slower because you run into these hurdles and obstacles that get in the way. So if it was purely down to will, we'd be moving a lot faster, I think. Faustine, what do you think? What do you think is the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest thing that uh, companies in the whole value chain can do right now? Well, that, that's, a, that's a tricky one. I mean, <clears throat> as I said, um, it is a systemic uh, problem uh, and it requires uh, systemic solutions. Uh, so that's uh, and the scale of uh, magnitude uh, is uh, is pretty high. Um, maybe I can come back to uh, what I've said. Um, you know, what is the most important in moving to net zero? As I said, there are three uh, uh, levels. Let's say first and foremost is avoiding emissions. Uh, second is reducing emissions, and third only comes carbon sequestrations and removal. So all efforts should primarily be focused on avoiding emissions and reducing emissions. That's actually the priority. Uh, in terms of avoiding emissions, um, ideas that comes to my mind uh, are, you know, reducing drastically food waste, uh, but also changing the type of food uh, that is produced. Um, and when it comes to um, climate, uh, obviously, uh, less animal products uh, uh, um, production would make sense. Uh, and, and in terms of reducing uh, emissions, uh, then comes energy efficiency, etc. But I would really insist on uh, the first step, which is to uh, avoid emissions. And also, as I said <clears throat> in my introductory statement, uh, it's important to bear in mind that uh, uh, the food uh, uh, and drink industry has the potential to reduce more than just its emissions. 
through targeting the production uh, and the raw material sourcing and also the, con the consumption through uh, uh, labeling and uh, uh, sustainable marketing campaigns, which is actually also what stressed under the farm to fork strategy. The commissions uh, committed itself to seek for commitments from the from the industry uh, 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 to uh, uh, have sustainable uh, marketing campaigns and to stop unsustainable ones. <clears throat> Uh, we have a comment here from the audience from Christoph Dirksens who says the lowest hanging fruit, Christoph thinks, and at the same time the most impactful is reducing levels of food waste and food loss. Um, Olivier, let's go to you. At the global level, what do you think is the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest thing that uh, the sector could do right now to lower emissions? Hmm, tricky. Um, tricky question, but I think... First of all, as I think the the two sectors talking to each other, the energy sector talking to the ag sector, would really make a difference because, as I said, the business case of SMEs in agriculture is is improved if they have better access to energy or if they get incentives because they do energy efficiency. And so, if their business case improves because energy access reduces food losses then they can pay a better tariff. So the energy uh, suppliers should see energy as a service for productive uses, because productive uses can also bring money to, the, to these users and then to the, to the energy companies. The second thing is, especially in, let's say, less developed countries, is really linking the food sector to the, the health sector through access to energy because then you can say well you know it's it's a, it's multiple benefits you with with energy you kill double birds so to speak and so this is where you can say well in this case we can we can think of incentives subsidies for the renewable energy because it all it doesn't benefit only the food sector but also the health sector and i think people would be very sensitive to that because i mean I mean, they care. They need to eat, and they need to be in good in good health. And what we do in FAO is that, as I was mentioning, we really provide information, uh, assessments on the best opportunities and also challenges, to tell you the truth. So, for example, in Egypt or, 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 or Zambia, for example, we mapped the avail the availability of residues from food chains at, in all the provinces. Bearing in mind that these residues can be used for other things. This is very, very important because very often they are used already for as fertilizer, animal feed, you name it. So what is left that can be used for bioenergy, for local food systems and health care systems? The other thing is where, for example, the, the yields of, food, of, of, of agriculture are not realized because there's no processing facilities, because there's no energy. This was done in Uganda. If you identify these places, this is where you need to locate your renewable energy systems like mini grids, because you know there's a demand. There's a demand for the food industry, for the food sector, because they're not realizing their, their potential because there's no uh, energy. And if you can complement that with comprehensive, really comprehensive, I mean, environmental aspects, social, financial aspects, concerning uh, investments in renewable energy in food chains. 
We've done that in several countries, and really it helps companies de-risk, but also banks de-risk their, 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 their support. Thank you. So let's move on to what policymakers can do to make this transition easier for everyone involved in the food chain. So we have all of these net zero targets for 2050, and recently we've had a lot of plans come out for how these different economies can get to their 2030 and 2050 targets. So we've had the Fit for 55 package come out from the EU. The UK just last week put forward their net zero strategy to get to their net zero goal. And in the US, we have the uh, Build Back Better legislation currently grinding its way through the US Congress. Um, Chris, let me ask you, do you think that all of these net zero plans from different governments around the world are putting enough attention on agriculture specifically, but also the food and drink chain more broadly? I note that in the UK net zero strategy, there doesn't seem to be a lot of attention to agriculture. So when all these strategies are coming out, what do you really need from policymakers when you're thinking about your agricultural sourcing, your product packaging, all this stuff that's key to reducing emissions for the food and drink sector? Yeah, look, I think clarity is what, what, what companies need, as you know, in order to make change happening. Companies, they need to have some degree of clarity on what's going on. I think agriculture is a challenging area. If you look at the food and drinks industry, nothing will happen if we don't reduce the footprint of you know agriculture. Uh, but yet we know the science on agriculture is also not fully there yet in terms of you know the the the, the sequestration benefits, etc. And you know what, what what the real impact of that will be. So I think we're all working in a slightly ambiguous space at the moment um, but it's absolutely clear that you know if you look at the the, the carbon footprint of you know a food and beverage company they are going to be between 30 and 50 percent you know of their footprint will come from agriculture uh, and therefore we absolutely need to get agriculture working in the right direction it needs to be a transition from you know how we we we, we work today to a much more regenerative approach going forward governments absolutely need to support that because obviously there are huge challenges in this space challenges in terms of you know a just transition for growers as they adopt new practices how do we quickly learn to know what the implications of that are from a cost of food standpoint and make sure that they're remunerated accordingly. The, the carbon that you know kind of is generated from the process, if it's finally proven and there's a science behind it that we can kind of be very, very clear on the benefits that you know a grower will get from doing regenerative agriculture, that will obviously help. Government needs to step in and create the right kind of regulation in order to bring the different parts of the value chain together. And I think, you know, if if I look at it from a business standpoint and I look back to the single-use plastics directive that came from the EU, you know, what that did was it brought, you know, people across the value chain together. I think while the attempt is there right now, the intent is there right now to do that for, you know, the um, for, for industries, the UK, EU, alike the reality is that it's a slow process and we're losing time as a result of that so if there's one thing that government can actually do is to bring as much clarity as possible right now and even if that needs to evolve over time industry will appreciate greater clarity at this point Faustine what do you think do you think and what you've seen in the the plans for net zero that that we've had from government so far are they paying enough attention to agriculture and the food and drink sector well, 
Um, first of all, I think it's always good to uh, to remind ourselves uh, what's the magnitude of the of the challenges, and, and science is clear on the need to urgently move to uh, a more sustainable uh, food and land use six, uh, system, and uh, uh, urgently. So that's 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 uh, that's clear, and that's uh, a clear starting point. Obviously, what's needed. Indeed, is a, a systemic changes, systemic innovations, and not just uh, quick fixes. Uh, when it comes to the EU, uh, the Green Deal agenda, um, and in particular the Farm to Fork strategy and the upcoming uh, food legislative uh, this framework on um, sustainable food system, seems to be going um, in the right direction because. Uh, at least from what we understand, uh, again, it has to be proposed uh, in 2023. We're still at the face of the inception impact assessment, but it is moving towards uh, a, a more coherent approach towards the different laws affecting directly and indirect, indirectly uh, uh, food uh, uh, and, and, and farming. So that's the step, obviously, uh, uh, in the right direction. Now, um, looking at the rest uh, uh, of the world, um, it is a bit worrying to see that uh, there are some reactions to um, the EU plans, uh, not necessarily supporting them. Just uh, recently, for instance, uh, uh, what came from the State Secretary from, uh, for Agriculture in the, in the, in the US, um, looking at the farm to fork strategy and, and uh, its objectives um, as not being science uh, 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 driven and, and science based and uh, calling for, for alternatives is obviously quite worrying because again, what's needed is a systemic approach. We're not going to get there without following a, a systemic change, a systemic approach and putting all the different uh, uh, laws, looking at them all together and changing them, them all. Yolanda, um, as Faustine noted there, I think that the EU is uh, a bit in the lead here in, in terms of looking at these issues when we look at the farm to fork strategy. And yet still, the Commission has come in for some criticism for not having its agriculture policy linked as closely as some people would like to the emissions reduction strategies. Uh, and that agriculture is still being left a bit to the side, uh, particularly in CAP policy. So um, do you think that the EU is integrating agriculture enough into its net zero strategies? Um, and what could be done more to have a more joined up thinking with agriculture, food and drink, and the overall emissions reduction strategy? Thank you, Dave. Uh, I think um, we are doing our best and uh, we can improve and we could do more. Uh, but as we mentioned by Faustine and, and for, for Chris as well, so uh, the European Green Deal uh, is the growth strategy. Since 2019, many things have been done to put all the sectors in equal footing, uh, to be responsible of the, um, of the decarbonization of our economies. So maybe we could do more, but the Fit for 55 is a good example where you put 14 legislative proposals touching different aspects of the economy and ensuring that all sectors contribute to the decarbonization. Uh, has been mentioned the, the, the farm to fork strategy. So was part of the European Green Deal means acknowledging the role of the agriculture and the uh, food and drink uh, production. So I think we, we, we should not underestimate the role of all the sectors of our economy and also the contribution to the carbon neutrality. Uh, it was mentioned by Chris uh, that, uh, of course, what uh, was 
saying uh, he agrees, but um, there are some difficulties or barriers to implement. I fully agree. But we need to keep in mind that all the legislative proposals are planned by 2030, which is tomorrow. By the way, it's tomorrow. 2030 is tomorrow. Uh, the interinstitutional negotiations are going to really, uh, they started in July. Now they are in full speed, uh, both uh, Council and the Parliament, because both, and uh, together with the Member State, are fully aware that we need to speed up the process. If we want to have ambitious decarbonization target, this should be done under the legislative framework. Why? because uh, not all are in the equal situation, but the force should be equally distributed across the EU, uh, taking into account the different starting points, of course, the different starting points, I'm talking about member states, but also the biodiversity and the specificities of the different industries uh, or segments of the economy in Europe. So this is something that is important and it's something that we always mention, the uh, transition, the ecological transition should be fair should be inclusive and should be cost efficient because at the end of the day we are talking about consumers so uh, we need to ensure that what we do is in line with our climate objectives but also in a way that we are not going to put additional burden of our uh, uh, SMEs of our enterprises enterprises or consumers what we need to be is a forward-looking um, uh, vision uh, that the transition implies challenges as chris mentioned but also opportunities and here we need to put the focus what are the opportunities that we have in front of us for the sector what are the activities that they are going to be in compliance with the um, uh, emission avoidance as faustine mentioned uh, emission reductions but at the same time is going they are going to create added value for the for the food and drink industry what are exactly the the activities that we can put in place uh in order to ensure that this is going to revert uh, in terms of growth in terms of employment in terms of sustainable uh, growth for the sector and i think uh, we we mentioned the energy efficiency and by far is one of the actions that i think we need to look at uh, together with the circular economy and to use resources, to use the heat, to use the uh, uh, waste to produce biofuels. This is completely activity in line that can revert to the sector in terms of uh, positive uh, revenue. So what we can do from the policymakers, I think is just to ensure that we can speed up the adoption of the legislative proposals. And of course, to facilitate implementation means not only to table something and okay, it's done. We need to facilitate the implementation. We need to guide the member state, the enterprises in the way to do it in and in to, to exchange those practices and to ensure that and they, at the end of the day, all are involved in this process. And we identify barriers, yes, of course, but we need to overcome these barriers. I think this is a um, constructive exercise how to do it. I will stop here. Thank you. Olivier, Faustine was mentioning that the EU's farm to fork strategy is getting a bit of pushback globally. Um, have you observed that? Uh, and, and do you think that the, the global situation is, is taking agriculture seriously enough when it comes to emission reduction? Well, on the one hand, yes, because we have now have a, a specific kind of work called Nivea agreement in, uh, in, in, in COP that's being discussed. So food security is part of the Paris agreement. So yes, but I would like to come back to some, let's say, policies that are mentioned in different places and some of the challenges. One elephant in the room, obviously, is the subsidies to fossil fuels 
including for farmers and small and medium agriculture enterprises, which, okay, everybody says we should reduce the subsidies to fossil fuels. And we've experienced that in Tunisia because we, we did a cost benefit analysis for uh, biogas or solar uh, uh, milk chillers in cold chains. And there's no way we can have a benefit if there are so many subsidies for fossil fuels. But we have to be a bit careful. So transferring, if we reduce the, the, the subsidies for fossil fuel, we need to transfer them to renewable energy so that the farmers and the SME uh, agriculture actors do not lose out. Otherwise, you just go for the cheapest option. The other one is the carbon tax. And the carbon tax is, 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 is great in theory, but it's a bit tricky when you consider renewable energy because the, the land footprint of renewable energy, so the energy produced per square meter, put it this way, for renewables is much lower than for fossil fuels. And, and, and so uh, if, if you want to put solar panels everywhere, to really meet your, your, your targets in terms of net carbon, then you will occupy too much land compared to just using fossil fuels. So this is where we need, the energy people need to get out of their box and say, let's look at land use optimization, multiple use of land, going back to what Chris was saying also, not looking at the food industry also, but upwards. For example, we work a lot on integrated food energy systems, Agri combining uh, solar panels with food production, uh, using the residues of food to produce energy, and, and agro, agro, agroforestry, which is a very good agroecology measure. So you have your energy crops combined with your food crops, all fine. And then you optimize your land use and therefore the land footprint of going into renewable energies. But the, the key point is that the, 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 the agri food actors, farmers, enterprise, and so on, need to be incentivized to do that. Otherwise, there's no point of them to move because they don't have enough incentives, and I mean financial incentives, quality, labeling, and so on, to do so. Thank you. So Chris, I think you wanted to respond to what Yolanda was saying? Well, yes, indeed, but also, also to what Olivier was saying, because I think Olivier is, is, is absolutely right in that, um, Ultimately, uh, ultimately, this is an economic uh, discussion. You know, we need to motivate and incentivize people. Uh, and you know, when it comes to growers in particular, uh, farmers, we, we need to make sure that they have the right incentives to be able to move forward. Uh, and ultimately, unless that happens, we're not going to see progress at the speed we need. And that brings me to kind of my, my response uh, to Yolanda's points, which I completely agreed with again, everything that Yolanda is saying, and I'm you know, fully supportive of, of the intent. But, you know, she mentioned that 2030 is around the corner, and indeed it is. Um, but we can't really wait to be organized until 2030 because there are interim milestones that you know many of us have that we want to deliver. And our modeling, internal modeling, you know, at my company shows that the longer we take to get intensity reduction, the more harder it is to get to a net zero target by 2040 or 2050 in the case of the EU. So, you know, kind of this is important, and I think kind of governments um, need to recognize recognize that industry wants to move in some cases you know it's more difficult than others and you'll have industry players that move first and others that move last but ultimately right now 
we're talking about a lot of things that ultimately once decided will have a long lead time before they deliver results. Uh, and this is where we need, I think, to be trying to get as much as possible on the table as quickly as possible in order to start making real momentum and, 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 and change. And I think it comes down to change ultimately, because what we need to do is we need to rebuild supply chains, whether it's energy supply chains or food supply chains or whatever. This is all about undoing what we've done previously. And we know that that doesn't come easily. So I think think we need to step in and you know collectively be doing more action now so that we can learn from those mistakes and, and, and move faster at speed in order to get to a 2050 target. So let's take let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, so we have a question from the audience from Luca Nizetto. It's a question for Faustine. Uh, Faustine, what are the policy instruments in the common agricultural policy that will steer these carbon reduction actions? Well, yeah. Well, thank you for the question. I actually wanted to come back to the cap because I didn't say uh, a lot on on uh, on this policy. While it's obviously uh, uh, one of the elephants uh, um, in the room uh, because of its size and also its potential, if well designed, uh, to steer the transition, the necessary transition in the in the land use sector. Well, I mean, <clears throat> unfortunately. Uh, um, what had been proposed initially by the European Commission has been um, uh, watered down throughout the, the co-decision process within uh, the decision, the co-decision makers. Uh, what's left out uh, is uh, less ambitious than what had been proposed, and therefore the tools that had been proposed initially, which we thought could be uh, could steer the transition, uh, might have less potential. That being said, uh, the member states uh, still have lots of flexibility in the way uh, they can, if they want, uh, use the national plans to steer the transition. And uh, the work of the Commission in approving the, the plans will therefore be quite uh, 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 fundamental and important, uh, especially when looking at the link between uh, the farm-to-fork uh, strategic objectives and the national uh, uh, plans and the tools. So now looking at the mechanisms uh, within the, the, the cap that can actually help uh, foster the transitions towards uh, 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 climate, uh, more climate mitigation. Well, as I said, unfortunately, what has been proposed when it comes to conditionality has been uh, watered down. Like just to name one, um, the rotation, which would have been uh, of crops, which would have been quite uh, uh, important, has now been shifted to uh, diversification. So uh, there is less potential there. Uh, but the eco scheme, uh, which is a new a new tool and which is still there, um, has uh, and could have lots of potential. But again, it very much depends on how member states uh, will design uh, that tool. Uh, what we have heard so far is not so uh, encouraging that member states are not necessarily making the best uh, uh, use of uh, of the tools under the uh, the plans so again the commission's role in approving the plans will be quite fundamental and what will be also very important for the commission is to look at the adequacy let's say between the environmental and the climate needs identified by the member states and then the intervention mechanisms that they put in place but just to uh, 
to sum up, uh, the eco-scheme has a potential if well-designed, and then also um, a, a pillar two uh, uh, measures, the agro, the agri-environmental uh, measures. Uh, but again, you know, um, that needs to be um, tailored uh, and work together uh, um, so that, you know, you would build more ambition, you know, for instance, you would have an eco-scheme and then a more ambitious agri-environmental scheme uh, on top of it. So we've got good news and bad news there. Uh, the next question from the audience comes from Evert Visser. I'm going to put this question to both Yolanda and Chris. Uh, so Evert asks, it seems to me that we need to focus on food production and emissions related to that, not electricity, transportation, though those are important too. Do we need clear-cut, reliable footprint information so as to make choices for less carbon-intensive food products by the food industry? Yolanda, do we need better footprint information for food and drink? I think um, it's, it's, it's always the starting point. You need to quantify. Uh, so I, I fully agree that we need uh, to improve our uh, our system to monitoring and tracing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So what we have today uh, is quite valid, but we need to uh, reinforce. And this has been as well included in in the legislative proposal that has been um, uh, adopted in 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 July. So um, I think uh, this is uh, the short the short questions. But uh, I want maybe to mention um, in relation with uh, what Faustine mentioned. Um, about uh, the planning tools uh, and the strategic plan. So I think uh, um, it's, it's extremely important to have a planning uh, in, in, front of us, uh, in front of us in order to monitor the progress. So I think a lot of uh, progress has been done with the national energy and climate plans, now with the recovery and resilience plans, and uh, with the strategic plans uh, that has been mentioned by Faustine. So we need to put the three um, together and to uh, have an integrated uh, approach for the economy. So I a little bit tend to disagree uh, in the question that only to food and production. Uh, we need to um, have the whole value change, but of course you need to identify actions for, for different segments. Uh, so I, I, I agree that uh, you need to have a whole vision uh, of the sector where you can get, uh, um, let's say, is more cost efficient uh, to, to, to put measures, but definitely all the segments we need to do an effort uh, uh, according to the specificities, according to the different starting points. So I think uh, it's a very valid um, question, but I will I will insist that uh, we need to combine top-down and bottom-up approach in order to ensure that we identify what are the the the, the most efficient measures to address um, to address the decarbonization of the sector. So I will stop here. Chris, what do you think? Do we need better footprint information? And should that footprint information be found on labeling for products? Eco-labeling is important. Consumers will make good choices. It will help companies to be more motivated to making change happen. Um, this is a, a real positive. So we need to find the right way of making it possible for consumers, making it simple for consumers, but absolutely supportive of, of the idea of eco-labeling. Uh, and I agree with Yolanda's comments on, hey, it's the value chain. It's not just about the production piece. It's actually quite a small piece in the supply chain. So um, uh, kind of, I, I would focus on the entire the entire system. Olivier, Olivier, global level, do we have this type of data? 
on the on the the foot the footprint of of of, uh, of I mean, we know the emissions uh, emitted by by the by the whole food sector. We know that it's it's more than thirty percent, and actually of that, thirty uh, percent comes from the energy uh, aspect. Um, but I wanted to say a couple of things. I was mentioning before, you know, this this uh, lack of information so uh, on the footprint, and as I, I was saying, mapping is one thing. Uh, comprehensive cost-benefit analysis. What we do, for example, when we do that, is we look at environmental aspects at the local level, let's say impacts of biogas on land use and, and, and water use and so on. But we also, and, and uh, at global, at the national level, on GHG emissions and so on, but we also look at uh, added value for the farmer, for example, so like the, this socioeconomic aspect, and for the energy company. And, and, and health aspects. And we, we, we did that actually for small and medium enterprises in, in four countries and three food chains. And this takes a bit of time because we do it locally and nationally. We are actually starting to discuss with some operators on how to maybe develop like an application that would ease the information for the small, medium enterprises actors, including farmers, According to the, uh, about the feasibility to really introduce renewable energy in their in their in their industry, in their company, in on their farm, that kind of thing. This this takes quite a lot of time, but once we if we can get to that, then I think making it easier to access information and produce the information, I think is is very very important, because as we say, even in the EU, most of the players are small and medium enterprises. And, and farmers are part of them. And we need to make these things easier. So, I mean, we're doing our bit. I know that there are a lot of tools and things being done at the EU specific level. But I mean, FAO being, being, being global, we can also be part of the EC work. Thank you. So we have a next question from the audience for Faustine. This question comes from Nina Perrick from Yara, Belgium. Uh, how uh, how do the how does the food chain plan to reduce scope three emissions, and what do you think about the introduction of a direct supplier to farm connectivity, where agricultural inputs supplied in the EU need to be offered CO two footprints info? Technical question there, Faustine. How would you respond? Well, maybe on the um, yeah. Uh, going back also uh, linking it with what has been uh, said before and and uh, and the footprint um i think it should not just be um focused on 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 climate um but as i mentioned uh, in my introduction um in order to stay within planetary boundaries uh, europeans each european would have to reduce by 80% the amount of natural resources they currently use for nutrition housing mobility and leisure it's a material footprint. Um, um, so I think we need to have a, a, a larger vision, let's say, and not just focus on climate, but also on, on environmental impact and biodiversity, et cetera, and capture that uh, in the footprint. <clears throat> so that's, that's, that's quite uh, important. Now also from um, maybe moving to a consumer's perspective here, um, 
I mean, you know, having information about the impacts uh, of the products uh, that they uh, purchase uh, and, and the production is important, but it's also uh, quite important to look at uh, the price. Um, and it has been recognized also by the European Commission uh, itself that today the price and cost of food uh, does not take into account the negative environmental and social impacts that occur in the production and processing. Um, and this needs to be also uh, tackled uh, in rather urgently. Now, last but not least, uh, consumers are not just driven by prices. It's also the whole concept of food environment that is quite uh, uh, important to bear in mind. Um, it's also how convenient the sustainable choices are beyond just looking at, uh, at the, 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 the prices, how accessible uh, uh, they are. And this also needs to be um, <clears throat> looked into <clears throat> within the, the upcoming uh, um, legislative framework on sustainable uh, food systems. Okay, so I want to take uh, next question from the audience. And this is a big picture, almost uh, philosophical question that comes up a lot when we talk about food and drink emissions. So this question is from Justin Q. What are the thoughts from the panel about the education of the public to consume less i.e. consume what they need instead of continuing overconsumption, which leads to higher emissions, higher health issues, instead of waiting for technologies to fix the supply chain. Yolanda, let me put that to you. Is this part of the Commission's thinking that part of the solution here is actually consuming less? Uh, I come back again <laughs> to, to this and integrate it because it's clear that one solution it doesn't uh, solve uh, or to, to achieve these climate uh, objectives, for sure. I think uh, the consumers play an important role, the awareness. Uh, so it's like uh, we need to align. We have a, a, a clear decarbonization target in line with the Paris Agreement. This is just in order to philosophical uh, reply, save the planet. Uh, and to uh, to ensure now with the COP uh, in front of us that uh, this is an exercise that is not only European, uh, we need to integrate in the global picture, but of course, uh, consumers play an important role. You mentioned eco-leveling. Uh, it has been proved very efficient uh, in terms like uh, to understand with our devices and the consumption of electricity in our devices uh, from lightning or the fridge or the dishwasher. So when you are aware of the, uh, of the consumption of energy, Energy, you can put the means to uh, reduce the consumption or to complete uh, behave uh, according to the principles to respect the planet or to really uh, preserve the planet. So I think it's important. You have the, the performance of the consumer is extremely important and necessary. Without the consumer on board, it's not possible to reach this ecological transition. But we need as well to provide the tools and the tools is like to have information. Uh, to, to understand uh, through the ecolabeling, what is the energy consumption of this product, how this product is produced, and the greenhouse gas intensity in the production of this, uh, of this uh, product. And to compare, if they compare and they say, ah, I'm going to choose this one because it's more environmental friendly, this is as, as well an element where consumers can 
uh, we empower consumers to take decision and the decision are taken according to um, the context that we have. There is a political commitment, but uh, it's much more than to have targets for energy efficiency, for renewable or for uh, reduction greenhouse gas emissions. We need to, um, it needs to revert uh, in the consumers. The consumer needs to see the benefits and the benefit is of course, better air quality, uh, um, lower uh, bill energy um, energy bills if they uh, produce renewables and uh, we reduce gradual uh, fossil fuel subsidies as Oliver mentioned and I'm fully agree uh, and of course we reduce the, the the imports coming from from uh, from outside the EU from fossil fuel imports so all these elements count so for sure the consumer is one. Uh, is at the heart of the ecological transition. But we need to ensure that whatever we do, we do with the consumers on board. We give them the tools in order to behave uh, in, in, the, in the appropriate way. And of course, at the end of the day, it reverts to consumers, either through the bills, either through the air quality, better planet, has been mentioned by Faustin, biodiversity. And this is key. We need to preserve our forests, is the natural things, but also it's just to enjoy the nature and to preserve that biodiversity in terms of nature, in terms of uh, animals. So all these elements, it's going to revert to the consumer. So I think it's extremely important and I fully agree. Consumer is an important piece in this, in this ecological transition. Thank you. Well, we're just about out of time, but I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to make some closing statements. And in fact, maybe if you could also address this question in your closing statements about whether consuming less is a necessary part of this journey. Um, Olivier, why don't we start with you? Um, what, what are your closing thoughts today, and particularly when it comes to this issue of consuming less? I think that's a personal view. One of the biggest challenge facing us is to continue to produce better quality food that is affordable. Because if you see, for example, some ads, uh, buy two, you get the third one for free, and things like that, and, and special offers and all of that, the temptation is to buy more, not necessarily better quality. Because better quality has a price. And so we can do all these things for renewable, for decarbonization, and so on, if it increases too much the price of food, it's a big issue. And, and this is something where, again, I keep saying, and this is probably my statement, is the energy people need to get out of their box. The food people need to get out of their box. They, both of them need to look at the water sector and the health sector, because these are all integrated. But after, at, at the end of the day, all what we said comes back to, and I, I fully agree with Yolanda, if the consumers don't buy it, it, don't just, it, it won't work. Because we, we're talking about the food sector where the consumer basically is the ultimate client. And so for me, and all what we say is fine, but we need to, to improve the quality of land use and food produce and all that. But bear in mind that this needs to be affordable to the majority of people. And this is something that requires at least two other debates. Indeed, for sure. Big issues here. Chris, let's go to you next. What are your final thoughts and then also on this issue of consumption? 
I, I think through the conversation today, we've heard that transparency is everything. So the more transparent we can be about what we are currently doing, then the more that we will be able to drive change and the right kind of change going forward. That includes things like consumer labeling, but it also includes, you know, to uh, Oliver's point around, you know, kind of how to industries work together in order to make things happen. Let's get more transparency out there of what's really happening so we can work faster together. In terms of um, growth and, you know, kind of consumers consuming less, I think ultimately we need to work towards a world where we operate within planetary boundaries. We can get to permissible growth on carbon and plastic waste, etc. But ultimately, if the you know, we're, we're doing bad things to people's health as a result of them overconsuming. that needs to be addressed. So I think, you know, we need to work towards a, a planet where, you know, consumers are informed and can make good choices, and then, of course, have the freedom to make those choices. But at least, you know, kind of being transparent is the way forward to get to the right place. Definitely emphasis on transparency. Faustine, what do you think for your final thoughts and then also on this issue of consumption? Yeah, well, a lot has uh, <clears throat> has been said, so it's quite difficult to uh, to wrap up here. But uh, yeah, maybe going back to <clears throat> sorry to to what I've said at the beginning. I mean, science is is rather clear. Europeans need to consume less and uh, differently, and it's not just about food; it's also about uh, housing, mobility, etc. Uh, but as it has just been said by Chris, changes are necessary, not just from the consumer side, but across the, the value change and uh, chain, sorry, and it, it will, we will get to our objectives and uh, we will avoid tipping points only if we tackle it as a whole. Now, <clears throat> looking at consumers specifically, because that was a, that was a question, I just would like to stress what, what I have said uh, at the beginning. Uh, about uh, earlier on, sorry about the uh, the issue of um, of prices. Uh, the price of uh, food production is not uh, uh, the environmental externalities and the cost to the environment and health is not taken into account uh, in in price and and should be and. That way, you know, the most uh, sustainable options would also become the most affordable one because it should not be the, the other way around. And also it's important to, to bear in mind that, you know, consumers are already uh, uh, asking for changing. You know, this comes from <clears throat> recent Barrenbender's uh, survey from, 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 from the Commission from April this year. Around a third of Europeans buy and eat more organic food, for instance, buy and eat uh, less meat, and while 16% consider the carbon footprint of their food purchases uh, and sometimes adapt their shopping accordingly. So the changes are already happening. But, uh, you know, that barrier of price, uh, you know, needs to be uh, uh, tackled. And also that concept of food environment, uh, which I mentioned early, earlier on, because it's not just the price driving the choices, it's the whole environment. There are other socioeconomic factors, et cetera, the accessibility, uh, the knowledge, et cetera, which needs to be tackled. And hopefully that's uh, com coming proposals uh, on the sustainable food systems from the European Commission will help tackle that in a coherent way. Great. And finally, Yolanda, let's go to you for your concluding thoughts. What are your main thoughts at this time? Now we're heading into this legislative period where a lot of this stuff is being debated in the Parliament and the Council. What are your concluding thoughts today? <laughs> Thank you. So we are in the right direction. Uh, we have all the elements, we have the political commitment uh, at European level. Now with the COP26, uh, we try to as well engage uh, the international, uh, the international uh, 
say uh, awareness as well to fight against climate change. Don't forget that Europe is responsible of 8% of the greenhouse gas worldwide emissions. So we are not alone uh, in this exercise. We need to engage other. Um, uh, from the interinstitutional negotiation, things are in the right direction. We are speed up uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the negotiations. Uh, Parliament and, and Council, and in particular the member states, are fully engaged. Uh, in this in this um, process, of course, a uh, situation uh, requires as well close look. Uh, we see now the energy prices, and we are fully aware the impact in the in our uh, European industry. So we really need to put all the means to ensure that uh, we accelerate uh, the transition, we accelerate the penetration of renewables. We put in our menu the need and the awareness to be more efficient in the use of the energy. Uh, just to recall that 75% of the greenhouse gas emission comes from the energy production of energy consumption. So it's clear that we need to change, and has been repeatedly several times, uh, we need to change the way we produce, we transport, we consume. So it's all in all, it's integrated. And uh, I, I would like to conclude that the transition should be just, should be fair, should be inclusive, should be cost efficient. And all of this uh, implies to have an integrated vision of the economy uh, and the whole value chains. We today focus on food and drink, but food and drink is not isolated. We see as well in the global uh, picture of the, uh, let's say, of the, of the uh, picture of the European uh, economy. So I, will, I would like to conclude that uh, uh, all play a role, all the sectors play a role, and uh, food and industry are making a great effort uh, with with the progress in the decarbonization of our of um, emissions has been mentioned the need of transparency i think is is key whatever we do in terms of renewables energy efficiency electrification goes through to have a better transparency process accountability of the greenhouse gas emissions in order to monitor the progress to trace the progress and to ensure that we put in place the appropriate measures to accelerate the decarbonization of the sector thank you very much Thank you, Yolanda, and thank you to all the panelists for some really interesting contributions. I think you've given us a lot to think about here, especially as we move ahead in this pivotal time when we've got COP26, the EU legislative activity, the US legislative activity, lots changing, lots emerging. This is a period of transition for lots of sectors and certainly the food and drink industry is a part of that transformation. So thank you all at home for spending your morning with us. I wish you a great afternoon and be sure to join us here again for the next EA Debates. Take care.